I like when I, when I pray for Sunday school, I never know when I open my eyes how many more people are going to be here, and it's usually about double from when we started. So welcome to those of you. Uh, <laughs> I'm not calling anyone out. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, last week, and we began... I never gave an answer to the question, but we began answering the question, uh, what is uh, critical theory? And that was the first of the ideas that we started to uh, venture into as we wanted to think about uh, how um, this idea of these principles of Marxism have influenced our, uh, our culture. And again, the drive we're getting at is how has this uh, ultimately, how has this influenced the church? And how are we to think about that? And uh, what are we uh, to, uh, to do with these ideas? What is the best approach uh, in uh, thinking about them? So uh, we, we sort of ended last time talking about um, the ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his, uh, his anthropology, his understanding of man, man's nature, and what did we say about Rousseau? What was his idea with regard to man's nature? Who remembers? Okay, good. That man, uncorrupted by his environment, is inherently good, right? So we declare that that was an idea exactly opposite of what we learn in the Bible, right? Rousseau says man is good, and the only reason man does anything bad is because he's corrupted by his environment, Whereas the Bible says, man, no one is good, no, not one, none is righteous, right? And no, nobody is good in and of themselves. We are all conceived in sin, as David tells us in Psalm 51. And so right from the get-go, we see that we are coming at the questions of uh, reality, the questions about life, why we're here, what we're supposed to do, and what we're supposed to think about everything around us. We're coming at these from a perspective that is very different with regard to the nature of man. Now, when you start to study um, philosophy and religion, you start looking at the ideas uh, throughout the history of mankind. This really is the fundamental question that all of these philosophies come down to uh, that will help you understand why people have the conclusions they have. What do you think about the nature of man? If we can answer that question anytime we approach some philosophical assumptions, we're going to be able to answer a lot of, uh, of the who, what, where, when, and why of these ideas. So we thought about Rousseau, and remember he said that um, because of the environment, man's corrupted, he had, to, he had to account for this idea of evil existing in the world. And so what did he say we needed? Because evil exists, we need to sort of uh, squelch that. So what was the idea? What was his answer to uh, what would be the right way to deal with that? Does anyone remember? Yeah. So these, these ideas of, remember it was this, this thing of why are we competing? What is the source of evil? And remember he said it was this idea of competition that we have a competitive bent uh, toward us when we start to in, in, introduce factors uh, that, want, uh, that where we want to sort of be better or uh, higher than the other person. 
And so it's because of competition, he said, that we have any kind of conflict. And so we need to eliminate competition. And so remember, he introduced this idea of a social contract and that we collectively as a people would gather together and we'd come to this general will of the people, that we would all come to some agreement of how we are going to interact with one another and, uh, and we would live according to that social contract. Now, how, do, how well does that go? Um, uh, in essence, that's, that's what we have in any culture, right? In, on some level, right? We've all agreed to live according to certain laws, maybe under compulsion, but nevertheless, we have this idea of a, of a social contract that's been given to us, that we're supposed to live according to these set, sets of things, and if we don't, uh, then there is some kind of uh, repercussions for not doing so. Um, nevertheless, we realize that just because you've made some kind of social contract, that doesn't mean man is going to live according to it. What is the general tendency? If I know there is, um, uh, this happens a lot, especially in business, if there are certain laws regulating how I do business, what do I hire attorneys for? Exactly. Where, how do I work around those things in order to still get to the ends that I want, right? Um, good or bad, I'm not here to say, depending on the law and everything else, um, however, that's how we think, right? That's how we're wired. It's not that my natural tendencies are that I'm, I'm good and this social contract's been employed and so I'm just going to say, oh, okay, I guess I can't do that anymore. I'm going to find a way to still get it done, right? Because that's my natural inclination as, man, good or bad, in terms of the action, I do have a priority in my life and who is it? Me and myself and I, the unholy trinity. So to think of Rousseau's idea as anything that's, um, that's viable in any sense of the, of the word is, is, um, is going to show us uh, where this thing fails from the get-go. Well, I bring up Rousseau because as we've been talking about Marxism, Karl Marx adopted Rousseau's hypothesis about human nature. And so that should tell us a lot right there about where all of this goes. Um, in essence, to Marx, human nature didn't exist as anything other than a social construct. So this idea of, of us having a nature of any kind that we could say this applies to all humanity uh, he didn't believe that was true. He just thought it was socially constructed. And so a people that live in Effingham County, Georgia, are one way because of the social construct of their environment. But people who live in Papua, Indonesia, they have a different construct in terms of nature because of their social environment. Now, again, does that, does that square with what we see in Scripture? No, according to the Bible, are we fundamentally different or the same than everyone else? Throughout all of human history, man has been the same, right? Yes, they wouldn't use the language of the inner man because everything was about what you see externally. So 
if you have a community of people who find something like um, retributive justice, like you, you killed my brother, so I'm going to kill yours, that kind of thing, they would see that and say, the reason they're doing that is because their social contract, if you will, whether written or stated or not, is that that's acceptable. Whereas someone else might see that and say, well, that's not, that's not a just or sound way. That's sort of an evil thing to be doing um, because, uh, because our environment has taught us something differently, essentially. So it's all external in terms of what we know and believe based on what we've been taught from the people around us. And this is really important going forward into this idea of critical theory because of where, where it goes. Yeah, Tyler. Right. It's morally neutral. Everything here in this, in this idea is morally neutral. To say right or wrong is sort of... Um, is, is a wrong construct, they would say. Because right or wrong is not, is not the way we approach it. We approach it based upon whether or not the society in general approves of it. And that's, uh, you know, that's why the 20th century, uh, the history of the 20th century um, is littered with dead bodies. <laughs> because these ideas were being employed. But we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so Marx believed that the history of humanity was the story of class struggle. Remember, we talked earlier about the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and he said this was, this was the problem, that we have this struggle in society. So if man was going to change, the social relationships, the social construct has to change. And that change can only come through the destruction of the standing traditions and institutions. And again, what did Marx say was going to be the means by which that happened? What had to take place? Revolution, right? We need a revolution. Now, what institutions do you think Marx had in mind when he said these institutions needed to change through revolution? Okay, the church in general, especially uh, Roman Catholicism, definitely. What else? Okay, the idea of having private property, uh, basic capitalistic principles. What? Yeah, capitalism in general. What else? Family, the, the institution of the family. We're going to really hit on that. What else? Yep, the academy is a big one. We're going to start with that today. Good. All of these things, essentially, at the end of the day, would need to be overthrown and reconstructed if we're going to have um, a utopian ideal in the end, according to Marx, which we know biblically is, uh, is not tenable. It's not going to happen. We will not experience utopia uh, on this earth. So, we talked about historically... Um, after World War I, going into World War II, the ideas of communism were proven unsuccessful. I talked last week about the start of the Frankfurt School, trying to carry on Marx's vision and everything else. Well, the major assumption for the Frankfurt School was not that Marxism had failed because Marxist ideas were wrong or bad, but because the problem was with, with mankind 
uh, being so weakened and so oppressed by a capitalistic society, a.k.a. Western culture, uh, that we didn't even realize it. So whether you, you realize it or not, they would say, is that all of us are under this tremendous weight of oppression. We just don't know it. Uh, because it all appeals to us in such a way uh, that we think everything is okay. And so the idea is that the, the working class is so thoroughly corrupted by our society that we're unable to even discern our own oppression. So you see what's happening here. Everything is going to be set up as us versus them, depending on which side you fall on. And so there is no us together collectively as a people in community. There's always this divide of us versus them. So you always have the oppressed and the oppressors. You always have those who are victims and those who are the victimizers. This is how... Um, all of these ideas begin to come to the fore. And they become attractive to people, right? Because of our nature being what it really is, as opposed to what Rousseau said and what Marx thought, our tendency is to want to be a victim, right? Why? Why do we, why do we feed on this idea of being a victim? What's that? Yeah? It gains attention? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we can escape accountability in that. Right. I put myself in a position where other people now owe me something. And I get to set the parameters of how that's going to be paid back, right? Yeah. Right. I become entitled to something. And you owe that back to me. Right. I don't have to take responsibility for my actions and I can shift all of the blame to someone else, right? Whatever that is. Now, we, we all have a tendency toward that because by nature, we are all blame shifters. Uh, I don't want to take blame for my own actions um, naturally, uh, so I want to find ways to identify that the problem exists somewhere else. I'm just a victim, right? I'm a, I'm a victim of this or that, whatever it is. Rob? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If our nature is what you say it is, you should just leave us alone. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I think it's a major fallacy in the, the whole process of argumentation. People are what they want to be because they agree on it, and yet it's corrupted, it's abusive, it's, uh, it's oppressive, so we need to undercut it and get rid of it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a complete contradiction. I agree. Absolutely. Okay, well, one of the things that Marx believed and wrote about was the immorality, what he called the immorality of inequality. He believed if things are unequal, then that means that they are immoral. What do you think about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? Does the Bible teach us that inequality equals immorality? No? Does anyone think yes? <laughs> okay. Good. So it does, it does depend what we mean by that, right? We want to be careful with how we think through that. What are, is, it, is, it raw, is it immoral 
that someone makes more money at their job than you make at yours? Is that immoral in any way? No. I would, in general, now obviously we can go down any of these roads and find examples of where, but we're talking in general. In general, is the idea that someone would make more money than you in their job versus yours? No, there are so many factors that play into that, right? Um, what other kinds of inequality? Uh, are, are, is it immoral that you were born in America and not born in uh, Mogadishu, Somalia. Is that, is that immoral because there's an inequality there? Right? So, to just say inequality equals immorality is this huge broad statement uh, that you start to apply to things that are... We, we have no way of changing that. That's just how God created us, how he put us in this world, and, uh, and what the circumstances are based on all kinds of factors. Where I was born, who my family is, what kind of education I get, what kinds of jobs I'm given. All these kinds of things start to play into all these factors. So to say inequality equals immorality as a general statement is, um, is a really a broad thing that is, is going to set us up for a lot of wrong conclusions if we just bite all of that on the whole. Now, when is inequality immoral? Okay. Good. Justice should be blind to these things like how much a person makes or what kind of job they have or who they know, right? True justice is that the law, whatever it is, is applied equally across the board regardless of who you are. And so in that sense, if someone who has more money or a better lawyer or uh, a better job or they know the judge or whatever else, um, it is immoral that that inequality would exist. Absolutely. Yeah, Rob? Good. That's a, that's a great example the other side of this. I've said this a lot. Like, I, I love my neighbor's wife, but if I love my neighbor's wife in the same way that I love my wife, there's going to be a big problem. Right, so that kind of inequality must exist. If it doesn't, um, you know, one of us isn't going to exist. Probably, <laughs> it's yeah. She said it's going to be me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. What else? What are what are other ways where inequality is immoral? Right, so the, the idea of one being wealthy in and of itself is not the immorality, but the means by which that was obtained. And that was through murder, that was through manipulation, that was through uh, strong-handed tactics like we see in any kind of oppressive regime of, um, with a dictator especially, in the grander scheme of things. What other ways? Can we think of anything maybe in American history that we might say there was an inequality that was immoral? Oh, slavery, yeah, that, that thing. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to talk about that. Social security, yeah. <laughs> Tax brackets. Um, and this is, this is a big one that we have to deal with. We have to talk about this. We have to deal with the reality 
of, um, of slavery and what that did, what that meant, how that applies to this whole conversation and where we are culturally today. That, that is um, one of the most significant um, issues in this whole conversation with regard to specifically to American history and how we think biblically about this. The most egregious example I can think of in our history of inequality being immoral is the issue of slavery. Um, and thank God we're, we're beyond that. But nevertheless, it is a part of this conversation that we need to talk about and we'll, that will come up throughout all of this. So as we, as we think about these ideas... Uh, we need to remember kind of the, the principles uh, that are underlying them. Like, again, the nature of man, this idea of social construct, this idea of inequality and immorality and what that looks like. Because the Frankfurt School used all of this to develop what was called critical theory. But instead of dealing with the same things that Marx was dealing with, like capitalism and economic factors, that wasn't their main focus. Their main focus was to take these ideas and principles and then find ways to apply them uh, in terms of cultural and ideological perspectives. And, the, and to still use this idea of oppressed versus oppressors, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And so... The idea was that there was this ruling power and they had this, this place of dominance over all of the other groups of people that were excluded. And so they were being denied the same rights and privileges as the ruling class. And so he saw a need for a more complex understanding of how all of this uh, was happening so that we could have an, uh, a revolution. There can be a resistance. Um, and so even though the shift took, uh, took away from the idea of dealing specifically with economic concerns uh, and going toward cultural, political concerns, the Marxist way of thinking was very much front and center. But the idea of this revolution was right there. What do you think the revolution would look like in their eyes? They're looking culturally, socially now. They're still wanting this revolution that all of the people would be released from this oppressive cultural construct in their minds. What would a revolution like that look like? How would you do that? Okay, so Marx's idea was one of a physical revolt in many ways, that they would take up arms. Um, okay, so I'll tell you up front that in terms of the Frankfurt School and their ideas of cultural, social change, it wasn't of a physical nature. So we can take sort of hand-to-hand -hand combat or warfare out of, of this picture. Okay. Okay, good. Exactly. There's a process. It takes time. Um, but they keyed in on it. And that was, uh, Felicia said, uh, this process of indoctrination. How does that happen? Well... Critical theorists designed something that they called, it's translated into English roughly, the long march through the institutions. The long march through the institutions. 
And they believed this was the way that true revolution was going to take place. The most effective strategy would be to infiltrate all of the major institutions of society and take them over from the inside and get them to adopt the ideas of critical theory. Um, one of the leading critical theorists, uh, Herbert Marcuse, he said, I regard the notion of the long march through the institutions as the only effective way. And so what they mean by this is that we become uh, the leading figures in every institution that we can. And so whether that is the academy, which is where it began, remember we talked last week about the history of that, whether that is um, in media, whether that is uh, in the church, we're going to find ways to infiltrate all of these institutions so that in time we can move closer and closer to our ideal and the revolution's not going to be one of taking up arms, it's going to be one of changing the hearts and minds of the people to agree with us. Sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? Yeah, Don. Yeah, definitely. It's very similar in terms of um, what... Well, to be fair, any, any, major, um, any major idea, any major worldview really has this kind of thing at the heart of it. Um, however, most are, are going to be a lot more... Um, out in the open about that, honest about that. As Christians, we certainly want to change the hearts and minds of people and do that through our influence in our various institutions, but we don't hide that reality. We're very clear about that and we're very vocal about that. The idea behind this was we're going to do that, but we're not going to tell anybody what we're doing. It's all very subversive, behind the scenes, behind the curtain, right? Um, <clears throat> so, what they said was that all of this was about working against the established institutions while working within them, but, but not simply by um, just going in there like a bull in a china shop. It was, so, uh, it was so sneaky, if you will, that they wanted to go and be a part of what was, was going on and doing the job learning all of the aspects of it. So if you think back uh, to, if you've ever studied like um, what the Russians were doing during the Cold War and they sent spies over here that took up American life in every way. And so nobody really knew that they were, uh, that they were spies. There's actually a whole television series on that. But that's the same kind of thing. We're going to be a part of this as much as we can while working toward our ends doing the job, learning the job, and yet maintaining our, our consciousness of what we're seeking to a- attempt in all of this. So a complete and total cultural takeover of the institutions by a persuasive and intellectual class. That was the idea. So what happened? Well, critical theory takes off. Columbia University in New York, Grandeis in California, and they start to do all of this that they're talking about in departments of sociology, departments of philosophy, art, science. Essentially, all of the humanities are beginning to be infiltrated by these ideas. Now, does anyone know the state of the humanities departments of most of the major uh, institutions in America today? What is it? 
Yeah, yes. <laughs> Very conservative and pro-family uh, would be the exact opposite <laughs> of what the vast majority of what we see in the academy today is, right? Why? Well, there can be intellectual debate about this, but my contention is that this is where it all really began. This is where it begins to unravel. Now, <clears throat> if you start to think about where all of that leads, well, all of those ideas give birth to new fields of study. Now they're generally considered mainstays in modern Western education. Um, some of you are old enough that when you went to college um, that you didn't have uh, entire women's studies departments or, um, or queer studies or whatever. Um, those didn't exist for you. But now those are, if you're going to be a major state um, university, those programs, you can get degrees in that, lesbian dance theory, or whatever. Like, you can have a full-fledged course, uh, a whole syllabus. Uh, all of your courses for your entire degree can be in one of these departments. Um, why? Where did that come from? Well, it came out of these ideas. What are those based on? Do you, do you think women's studies programs are based on um, identifying what uh, true womanhood is in culture. No, it's about teaching women that they are oppressed, that men uh, have dominated through a patriarchal society, and that they need to break free of that. And so we're going to read everything through um, the lens of feminism. Right? So the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, right? We're going to read that now through the lens of feminism regardless of whether or not women are hardly even mentioned in that story. Well, that in itself is a problem, right? Mark Twain must not have seen the value of women, so he didn't include them in his story. That's what we're supposed to get from Mark Twain in the end. That's how we do analysis in that mindset, right? We can do that on a whole host of things. Why? Again, because our framework is what? That we have victims and we have victimizers. And so when we study, we need to study with that in mind. That's the whole mindset. That's the whole idea. So now we can develop entire programs that continue to push this idea. Well, hopefully you're seeing where we're going with regard to um, how this starts to influence the church. So the overall aim here was to understand how and why people, according to them, what we're all doing is participating in our own oppression. Why is that? They want to know. Why do we do that? Um, and so much of their work was aimed at critiquing and changing all that they saw as a result of the Enlightenment and as a result of the age uh, of reason and faith. Now, we can probably guess that the first thing the long marchers sought to destroy was capitalism. And we... We talked about that because that was a foundational Marxist principle. Um, and so there's a lot to say about that. Now, one of the things we have to do when we're studying any ideas is think about them critically and not just toss everything out, right? What is, what is one of the most effective tactics of the devil with regard to teaching falsehood? Good. Making it seem like truth. And how does he do that? Good. There's always a mixture of, of truth in with the error, right? And that's definitely what we see here. So as I kind of 
give us some of these ideas with regard to how people interact in this capitalistic mindset, we're going to hear some of this and say, that's probably pretty accurate. Those are things as Christians we talk about that we need to be aware of, we need to be mindful of. Um, But we have to remember what's the underlying foundational principles that would lead to these conclusions for them. Why are they saying these things? Definitely not for the same reason we're saying these things, even though we may be saying the same thing, if you will. So, <clears throat> a, few, a few of the ideas. They, they wanted to look at why consumerism, advertising, mass, mass culture, all of these were not only upheld by capitalistic society, but also in, in their minds that enveloped us, it enslaved us, uh, it made us unaware of life outside of capitalism. The critical theorists thought that people who lived in that environment had no idea that a world existed outside of that. And so that's like, you know, as, as Christians in the church, it would be like saying, well, we, we only know life within the boundaries of Christianity. We don't know that anyone lives outside of this. Again, the village. You know, we've, we've carved out this place in the middle of the woods. We all live there. We have our ideas. We sort of shut out the rest of the world. That doesn't exist. And even if it does, it couldn't possibly be what we have here. And therefore, it's not good. It's, uh, it's evil or whatever else. We just write it off. And that's what they thought that all of us believe. And so we need to, in that, um, distinguish between true and false needs. And give this escape plan if an individual wants to escape from this, uh, this so-called oppression of capitalism. And so what are true and false needs? Well, to them, false uh, needs were those that were uh, put on us. Things that culture, things that society, things that, again, capitalism told us we need. So to them, it was the need to toil perpetually, to work hard, to be aggressive, uh, to be competitive, and to engage in that process. That's a false need, they would say. You don't need to do that. That's just culture telling you you need to do that. Um, and so the, the result, they say, is if you get rid of these kinds of false needs, uh, then you can attain euphoria. You can get to a place of happiness because you're not being restrained by other people's ideas that they think you need to hold to. And so the prevailing idea that we have uh, for our need to relax, our need to have fun, our, our need to behave and to consume in accordance with advertisements, to love and to hate and to have what others love and hate and have, uh, all of this belongs to the category of false needs because if we would just do away with the false needs, this would be our natural state. And so the idea is, you and I, according to them, we go to work, and we work hard, and we save money, and we do all of this so that we can just buy more stuff that we think is going to bring us happiness. Or we can go on our next vacation uh, for a short fix. It's like a drug, right? I need, I need my drug, so I'm going to plan six months out my vacation. I'm going to go, I'm going to get it, and I'm going to come back. And as soon as I start back to work, day one, I'm toiling hard for the next one, right? Now, is there any truth to what they're saying? Yes. Yeah, there is. Is that one of the dangers of being uncritical 
across the board when it comes to the way that we think and work and use the resources God has given us. Absolutely. But what does the Bible say about work? And not only work, but hard work. Is it an oppressive state that we put ourselves in? Is it supposed to be so that we can just buy and consume and have and wait for our next fix? Is that what the Bible says about work? What does it say? Okay, so our command to work is unto the Lord and not unto man. That changes things right there, big time, right? What else? Kaylee? Yes, good. That's a super important point, that work came before the fall of mankind. Therefore, work is a, um, is a, an, a creation institution. It is something that came, and so people, you know, with the fall came the struggle of work by the sweat of your brow and, and thorns and thistles in, in the garden and all of that. But the work itself was instituted at creation and therefore was something that God gave as a good and perfect and right institution. Yes. Yes. Good. Yes, excellent. God worked in creation. In creating all things, speaking all things into existence, God continues to work in sustaining all things. If God stopped working for even one half of one half of one second, all things would cease to exist. Uh, so God is constantly at work in that regard. Good. So these ideas, while again, while the things they're saying, we can identify in our own hearts and say, yeah, there's a tendency to always just use this as a means to get my next thing, whatever that is. And, and, and yet, at the end of the day, what they're saying is that work in itself is the problem. That's the problem. It's that you work for a boss, and they, uh, they sort of restrict your, your time, and they restrict how much you can make, and what you can do, and what you can make. Um, and so, that's the bigger problem. And so then, in their minds, we continue to be what we always have been, products of a society whose dominant interest demands that we are oppressed. And so this confusion, according to the now neo-Marxists, to these critical theorists, is that we don't know how to identify the difference between true and false needs. What would you say they probably think true needs are? Okay, yeah. Good. A focus on biology. That's a good way to say it. That the essentials of biology. So food, shelter, clothing, those kinds of things. Uh, what, what else do you think they might identify as true needs? Let me give you a hint. How are they doing this? They're doing this through a long march through the institutions. So where do they want people? What's a true need all of a sudden? Huh? Yeah, that you are being educated. Not just that you're being educated, though, but that you're being educated by the right people at the right places at the right times. Left behind, right. And how are we going to accomplish that? We're going to accomplish that by making sure everyone is in the same places being taught by the same people. Right? So now that becomes... That's not, a, that, that's not any longer a... Um, something that happens in a culture 
as a privilege or something that not everyone has to do. No, now everyone. Everyone must go to college. Everyone must get a degree, and you must do it at these institutions. And in fact, we're going to fund that for you and make sure it happens. Why? Because we have a process by we're trying to, uh, to work through in order to accomplish our goal. Yeah. Good. So another true need they would identify is that we have an equality of outcome. Right? Not, not just an equality of opportunity, that everyone has equal opportunities to achieve the same things based on your, your skills, your gifts, your... Uh, your talents and everything else. But the outcome should be the same. And so we need to uh, manufacture uh, our society in such a way that we can adjust things in order that we can make sure everything in the end um, comes out even Steven. So if you are a um, taxi cab driver, you should be making the same amount of money as a brain surgeon. There should be an equal outcome there. You had the equal opportunity up front, but that wasn't enough. We need to make sure that in the end, um, because remember, we said early, what was Marx's idea? That everyone had a skill, and that skill was given to them, um, he would say, through whatever means they had of education, whatever else. And that one skill was to be employed for the betterment of society, not the individual. It was about the group, collectively. So if you're helping society by driving the taxi cab, and you are, no one disagrees with that, um, that you are doing something as beneficial and useful and should be the same uh, in terms of pay and, and benefit and everything else as the one who's doing something like brain surgery, right? And across the board, Rob? Right, well, ultimately in their mind, uh, the exchange of goods and services doesn't take, even take place in the same way. So questions about and everything else are really, that's outside the fray of what they even want to discuss. So ultimately, we would just have these services available to everyone, and it wouldn't matter. There isn't a discussion about cost. Yeah. Sure, and who's making the most money in our culture now? Yeah. Sure. Sure. Right out of high school, that was me. I didn't belong in college when I was 18. Um, and I would have done a lot better had I become a plumber or an electrician those early, early days out of high school. So, uh, absolutely. But that is, again, why is that? Because we have an agenda that we need to promote. And when is the best time to do that? When people are young, they're fresh, they're impressionable. We just got them away from their parents. We start introducing them to ideas. Oh, this guy has a PhD. My parents told me I needed to be here. The school, all growing up since I was in kindergarten, everything was about preparing for college. When you get to college, this is how it's going to be. This is what you need to know. So we're getting you ready to go there. College prep, early graduation, all of these things geared toward let's get them there as quickly as possible so we can start indoctrinating them against the institutions that we mentioned before, the family, the church, and any kind of civilized notion of society based on Judeo-Christian principles. Right. One, one person has one skill and they use that and the paycheck they get at the end of the month, no matter what the job was they did, uh, no matter how many hours they worked, is the exact same as everyone else's. Yeah. Right. And you have one payer doing all of that. It's the government. 
Yes, exactly. The mo- level of motivation. And that, so what is our motivation to do that job? Well, it should be the same because we're all benefiting ourselves and one another, right? No longer am I a part, of, I'm not a cog in a machine anymore, right? This, this little piece that I'm making for some machine that I'll never use, that's not me anymore. I, don't, I got to break free of that. I'm actually providing a service that benefits me directly or benefits my neighbors. And so I should be really happy about that, right? Unless you're the one that's not using the taxi cab. Well, you know. <laughs> yes, you haven't bought in yet, right. <laughs> Mine's a monarchy. Yeah. It is a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah, let's, let's save that for when we talk about family because that's a, big, that's a big question and that's actually something that they would have raised in that. Debbie? It's a great question. Right. Right, you're right. The incentive is gone. That was the point there. We should all be just as happy. Right, right, exactly. That's the end of the day. The incentive is supposed to be, again, remember, this goes back to the fundamental understanding of, of who, what kind of people we are. What is our nature? If our nature is inherently good, as they believe, how Marx and Rousseau propagated and all of them believe, if we are inherently good, then our natural desire is going to be to do something for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our community. And so if, and I'm using taxi cab driver and brain surgeon because I know of a story in, uh, in Cuba. I watched this documentary. This guy is a brain surgeon in Cuba, but he said, I can make the same amount of money doing brain surgery or driving a taxi cab for less hours, less stress. I'm driving a taxi cab. So Cuba right now, most of the taxi cab drivers are actually very, very highly educated people because they actually pushed everyone else who didn't have education out of the taxi cab driving market because they didn't want to go do their highly skilled jobs for the same amount of money. And that goes right to your question. Of course. Yes. They, they, they are, they're probably far more skilled than they need to be, obviously, to do that job. And, uh, and so they have the best, you know, now Cuba can say, right, we have, the, we have the best taxi cab drivers in the world. Exactly. Well, <clears throat> we're out of time. Hopefully, hopefully, these concepts, there's a lot of good discussion here. You're starting to think, your wheels are turning. How, how are these ideas, these, these Marxist principles from early on, have now entered, in terms of our historical timeline that we're working through, they've now entered into the institutions. And we're now starting to propagate these ideas and trying to get people to understand that they are oppressed and there is an oppressor and they need to break the chains of oppression. And we're going to do that by telling them over and over that they're victims and there are victimizers. And so you need to identify your victimhood status. See where you are on the, on the, uh, the scale and we'll talk a lot about that, especially as we begin to deal with postmodernism as well. We'll start to see that stuff come through. Um, now, the big, the big leap into all of this that we really need to be working through is continue to think. Where do these ideas, when thinking through them, how do they compare to Scripture? And where do we see these false ideas start to enter into the fray 
with regard to the discussions going on within the church. So that continues to be our aim, and we'll continue to think along that. So we're out of time. Let me pray. Father, thanks again so much for our time together. We're grateful for the uh, good, uh, robust, and healthy discussion we're able to have this morning. We pray that we continue to be able to do so, uh, that we start to see things more clearly around us. Lord, we're, we, don't, we don't do this uh, to, uh, to create fear or to, uh, to make us to be greater enemies of false ideas, but rather that we're simply equipped equipped as a people to understand how to uh, continue to navigate our culture with faith, uh, how to uh, maintain the, the purity and truth of the church. And, uh, and Lord, we, we want to do this in order that we can glorify you. As we've mentioned already, one of the greatest tactics of the evil one is that he would mix uh, truth with error. And so we, may we see through the error, may we stand firm on the truth and be faithful in our uh, continued uh, push, our continued long walk uh, to that great celestial city. And so we pray, Lord, you help us to continue to think about these things in relationship to the truth of your word. We pray now you'd prepare our hearts for worship. We're grateful to be able to gather. We pray for Pastor Sam as he preaches for us this morning that you would walk with him uh, by the power of your spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.